my absence was really, I think, the cornerstone of my eventual involvement in it. Well, you never know when you send something to an artist whether they, in fact, ever read it, <laughs> that it goes into a void. And I didn't know David, but I'd seen his work, and it became a sort of fixation in my head. Because there were things, parallel things happening, oddly, or seemed to me, appeared to me in my my observation or just thoughts about him that would parallel thoughts, not necessarily to the story, but to what I'd been thinking about the story and the attitudes in the story. It seemed parallel kind of work that David was doing at the time. And, and I saw a documentary shot about him around... It's called Cracked Actor by Alan, right. Alan Yentob, who is now the uh, head of... BBC Two. And I couldn't think of anybody else for it, actually. The only other person I'd ever thought of in discussing it was Michael Crichton, but only because he was six foot ten. <laughs> I thought that was... And, uh, Is it not true, then, that, that you really wanted Peter O'Toole? <laughs> <laughs> no, I never thought of Peter O'Toole. That's the apocryphal Is story. Mm, oh, that. yeah. Well, I'm glad I've got that sorted out. <laughs> Anyway, I came to New York and heard from various levels of management. <laughs> yeah, David will be in New York. Actually, none of them were very level. They phoned and uh, said, oh, yes, uh, David wants to see you. And come round to the house. At, well, he's recording. Come round at 10 o'clock, maybe a bit before. He should be off by 10, so why don't you come round about 9.30, have a drink and I got at 9.30 and it chatted away to these strangers until <laughs> 10. And boy, there were some and, strangers. Um, strangers coming and going and 10.30 came. There was a call from the studio, it looks like 11. At about three, I thought, this is a wrap. <laughs> this is not gonna happen. But by that time, I think I'd had a couple of good martinis. I thought, well, if I stay till three, I might as well stay till 3.30. And at 3.30, the phone went again, and they came back and said, it looks like it'll be certainly within the next half hour, maybe by five o'clock. He arrived, and we spoke for about five minutes. He said, I'm tired. I said, I can understand that, so am I. And he said, don't worry, I'm going to do it. And he showed me to the door. <laughs> I was obviously looking a bit stunned from 9.30 to 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> I tell you, don't worry. You know, let me know when you want me. I'll be there. And I said, but we're starting in New Mexico. And he said, I'm saying, I'm going to do it. And he showed up. I think the first thing we shot on the movie was the Hannyville signpost with a nice long shot to get the crew working. Using my cardinal rule, it was a nice shot of David Bowie walking into town. I had no idea the balloon was going to be there, and it broke free of its door and came bouncing down the track towards us, you know. I said, don't cut it. I never believe in cutting anything, you know, because it, it's telling you something, you know. There we are, the co-star makes a 
and appearance. <laughs> well, the first thing he sees, of course, of a connection with the human is the alcohol which is going to destroy him, or at least keep him here. I must say, for an alcoholic, he looks particularly well at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> It's your life story, is it, Nick? <laughs> the only thing I can add to that is that uh, I'd known only the uh, involvement that Nick had had in performance with Jagger before. So I, I went through the previous films and I was very, very impressed with Nick's work. Overwhelmed, in fact. I thought it was Walkabout in particular really struck home. I thought it was a wonderful film. But what I didn't tell him that day when he turned out is that I hadn't actually read Man of <laughs> And it was a combination of having seen Walkabout and actually meeting Nick in person that convinced me that this is something I should definitely get involved with. So I think I conned my way through giving like, you the impression that I'd actually... Maybe it was outside, maybe it was home all the time, but upstairs. Possibly, <laughs> yes. Get, getting with secret cameras, getting a reaction from you, seeing what kind of metal you are. Um, but I remember that Nick talked, this is one of the few things that I remember from 1974, 5? 74. 74, is that Nick was uh, talking, I, I mean, I tried to kill the conversation as quickly as possible because I didn't want him to suss that I hadn't read it. So he was throwing bits of the film at me and I was, yes, quite, quite, absolutely, oh yes, I can see that. And so I'm bluffing my way through. But it was uh, probably the best decision based on absolutely nothing other than a man's previous work that I've probably ever made. It's a wonderful experience. I'm very, very proud of that film. T.J.N. Do you have your ID? We are all aliens. The idea of an alien being having to be from... We haven't finished with the aliens on the Earth yet. <laughs> I mean, the, the aliens from outer space are yet to come. Some marry them. I mean, to be stuck. I remember when we were shooting the scene, Mr. Newton first goes into the pawn shop. Where are you from? You know, I mean, Okay, with Western world and the and the he was from England. He could speak English, but he was an alien. You know, maybe I remember someone said to me, some years later, the studio executive said, I never understood that movie at all. And he said, uh, I was driving into the valley to the studio, and I pulled over the side of the road, and I thought, I know who Mr. Newton is. It's you. <laughs> he said that you know, a foreigner stays. A foreigner for a long, long time, you know, whether it's a friendly foreigner or yeah. whatever. You drag the luggage of, the, of otherness with you. Yeah, the coming of, of whole communities to America, which is a wonderful thing. But still, the fight in Europe now between trying to be united, but still alien beings, you know, alien. As Rip Torn's character suggests at one point, I mean, he asks his very serious question, Mr. Newton, are you Lithuanian? <laughs> Which I think is one of my favourite lines in the movie. It's a very funny line. For him, that was quite alien enough. Now, maybe he didn't want to face up to the consequences of having to ask the ultimate question, are you of our planet? 
I'm not sure that he felt that was necessary. He just needed to know that. How far an are you? <laughs> yes, how far an are you exactly? My preparation in those days was akin to just putting a hat on, and if it looked right, then that was it. Actually, it hasn't really changed very much at all. I think that probably one of the things that Nick identified with me is that I was definitely living in two separate worlds at the same time. My state of mind was quite fractured and fragmented, but I didn't really have much emotive force going for me, so it was quite easy for me not to relate too well with those around me. David, I watched him and it struck me that he was always different. He was not an, an artist that got into a mold. He seemed to be always changing. And that attracted me, that he seemed to have that wonderful chameleon change and, and make use of his life and grow from it in terms of his work, you know. And I don't think you can put him in a box like a folk singer or a a rock and roller, he is expanding and changing all the time that couldn't be pinpointed. There I am, finally, appreciably younger, not nearly as distinguished as I look today. It was, of course, great fun to wear those glasses that I couldn't see anything through so that by the time the first couple of days of shooting were over, my legs were a mass of sores from running into tables and chairs. Are you all right? Just tired. I'd just gotten back from a trip to China, and I was in a kind of traveler's euphoria. It was during the Cultural Revolution, and it was a, an interesting and eccentric journey. And uh, one of the first things that happened when I got back is somebody called me, but I don't know who, and said, there's a project Nick Rogue is doing. Well, that was good enough. I've been a longtime fan of Nick's, both as a director and as a cameraman. And I believe that Candy Clark, who was an old friend of mine, suggested that Nick uh, think about me for the part. We had a meeting, and as far as I can remember, that was it. What exactly do you want? I want a lawyer who's well-versed in patent patents. That's me. Reasons for doing the film. One, employment. Two, fun. I might add, in the fun category, somebody said, well, who's in it? And somebody, myself or Nick or somebody said, well, uh, David Bowie, Candy Clark, Rip Torn, Buck Henry, uh, and he named one or two others, and this person said, well, uh, that's not a cast, that's a dinner party. A point well taken, and why wouldn't somebody want to be with the dinner party rather than just a cast? They were all either friends of mine or people I had admired. The location was interesting, which is always a, of some importance to me. It's nice to work outside of Los Angeles and in a place as... Uh, exotic as New Mexico. I got to age 20 or 25 years. It's a kind of peculiar trick, and I, I don't really know whether it was successful or not, but it's always interesting to do. I also got to play a homosexual, which was unusual in films in that time. 
without ever making any particular reference to it. I mean, it was interesting to play a homosexual character with no specific references to the homosexuality as such. And also, uh, although this wasn't built into the deal, I got to blow a bubble on screen, a spit bubble, which I think is the first time it's been done since Harpo Marx did it. Science fiction, of course, already sets up a kind of sensibility of its own. It frees the poetic sensibility to a certain extent, because you can play with ideas, some of them completely loony, and some of them very reasonable. You know, the metaphorical structure is already built in, and the audience will allow things to happen that they'd never allow to happen if they're watching what they consider to be real people doing real things in real time. My assumption after seeing the film, not while doing it, but after seeing it put together, is that it. it's all about alienation. And Bowie is either a real alien, or one can make the case that he is just a genius in a complicated, paranoid state. And my character is an alien in another sense. He's gay. He's removed by his very, very bad eyesight from normalcy. Most of the characters are in some way alienated, it seems to me. So it's all this series of interrelated alien forms. I always thought as this went along that one could construct a story out of what might be the central metaphor, which is the alienation of genius, uh, the thinker or the artist in a society that doesn't appreciate him. There goes the saliva bubble, one of my proudest moments. I can't remember how long it took to get that out. It might have taken a while since uh, it's always hard to produce a saliva bubble on command. But only someone as peculiar as Rogue would have said, sure, go ahead and do it. You have complete authority below me. I don't want to have contact with anyone except you. You know, you don't think about whether you're acting with somebody who's been in a hundred films or somebody who's never been in one. What David has, of course, is a matter of presence. Like most rock stars, like most musical figures, he has enormous presence. And he's so compelling physically that it's always interesting. Father used to say, Oliver, when you get a gift horse, walk up to it, pat it, quiet the animal down, and then using both hands, force open its jaws and have a damned good look in its mouth. It's not like other films. I don't think Rogue's films demand quite the same things of actors that most other films do, or that a lot of them do. Because so much of the, the questions actors normally ask why am I doing this? Why am I going over here? Why am I saying this? Don't quite apply in the same way. Rogue's idea of what's happening is extrapolated from things that happen physically, from the music of the movement and the intercutting of various things that don't really 
apply to the story so much as they do to the overall sensibility of how you're supposed to feel. But guys like Rogue have had uh, an enormous effect on all the filmmakers that come after them, as everybody does. You know, I think JFK is, to a certain extent, a child of a kind of rogue filmmaking. Not, not even meaning that to be a pun. And that's interesting, too, is how those... is how the audience can now sit through a film whose style is jagged and fractured and, and built up of, and a mosaic of lots and lots of pieces and themes. Of course, in a film like JFK, it helps that all the characters are, are, are known historical characters or extrapolations of them. But it is unimaginable to think that the style of JFK uh, would be an acceptable style 25 years ago. It just pushes the, the grammar a little further. The content of the film was almost unimportant. I do remember that. It was Nick's approach to what he was doing, and it seemed to gel very much with what I was in my infancy in, in attempting to do in my work. And as I say, it was that kind of you know, immediate reaction to each other that made me confirm with myself that this is something that I, I indeed wanted to work with this man. And it's, God, I did as well, didn't I? I'd never known about getting up so early. Hello. I just marked your paper. How'd I do? Don't worry about it. I won't. I thought, it? he was shocked. Again, about violence, you know, I mean, they're enjoying their, their, this violent sexual relationship, violent but joyous, and this, this kabuki-type theatre, no-type theatre, uh, that not understand, coming to, people talking about, I guess, coming to opinions here, he's dragging the girl who's having fun there. This is an art that... Is it good or is it bad? Who knows? You know, that's making decisions about things that um, that are, Mr. Newton's not only an alien, perhaps from another culture, but from a different universe. That, that as we all have to fight at times, you know, we don't like that behaviour. You know, but they do. <laughs> they don't. He's watching this kabuki that seems to him particularly frightening and upsetting just the way that someone else might find that that form of sexual play unpleasant or but it isn't it is you know, can't be ashamed of that people are who they are That camera always interests me. Years and years ago, Milton Green, the photographer, was a friend of mine, and I was at his house in New York one day. And as I was leaving, he said, wait a second. I was standing on the front steps. He had a brownstone over on the east side, and he came out of his door, and he very quickly took a picture of me with a camera I'd never seen before. And I said, oh, okay, well, send me a copy. He said, no, 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 here it is. 
and it was the first I'd ever seen or heard of a Polaroid. And there it was, this incredibly mysterious thing, not unlike when Rip first sees the developed film in the, in the World Enterprises camera. So I went right out and borrowed $1,500 and bought some Polaroid stock. In no time at all, I got a brand new life and I like it. Maybe I'm not my own boss the way I used to be, but so what? Oliver, you're the president of one of the largest corporations in America. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, it's never too late. In the context of general audience's relation to films, by their very nature, Nick's films are cult films. That's true about a long list of directors whom I admire and whose films I would be happy to be in. They uh, are not, by their very nature, films that are easily accessible to American audiences in the way that they expect their films to be. There's enormous amounts of information in Nick's films that depend to a large extent on familiarity with uh, artifacts of culture, uh, some popular culture and some fine arts. I mean, you know, to point a camera at, uh, albeit a very famous painting, but a painting that isn't, you wouldn't go out in the street and say, uh, who, who painted the fall of Icarus and expect to get a lot of people to answer it. And to show a, an Auden poem for enough time for a viewer to read it, that already narrows the audience to a sizably smaller amount than if you show uh, a diner sign. The films of guys like Rogue depend on a subtext so powerful that it carries the audience through all these sort of minefields of disparate information that they may or may not be familiar with, most likely not. I mean, if I owned a copyright on the Bible, I wouldn't sell it to Random House. It's what I want. The way that I read it, uh, for me, in fact, it wasn't godlike at all. In fact, it was, for me, best exemplified by the painting that's used in Bruegel's Icarus Falling, as in fact, he was very much a fallible entity. I won't say God and I won't say human, because, of the, uh, you know, he is just a being. He is a being. And it's his endeavours are so destroyed by the beings around him. It's kind of sad. The campus computer gave That damn thing doesn't have a mind. It's not meant to have a mind. That's what makes it perfect for this place, right? <laughs> I remember one day Rip came onto the set in a particularly stompy mood. I loved Rip, I must point out. I thought he was a wonderful guy. Really sort of Hemingway or Mailer or something about him. Um, so thoroughly American, East Coast. And uh, he said, he had it in for Nick that day for some reason. He said, you're going to treat me like a dog. I'm going to react like a dog. <laughs> and Nick looked at him and said, we won't be shooting Mr. Torn today. <laughs> Took the camera off and just left him there on the set, fuming. We were all agape every morning, waiting to hear his last night's exploits. And he'd sort of come through barbed wire fences and be found in ditches and just, just, I'll tell you what happened last night. Every day and night was a, a huge adventure for Rip, in a great manly way. He's a great guy. What are you talking about? 
I'm talking about the things you pursue, Nate. Young things. Rick Dorner plays the professor, has affairs with his students. Buck is in a homosexual relationship. The film gave me an opportunity to use that without being part of the plot. The characters who inhabit the plot, that's part of their life, but it has nothing to do with, really with anyone else but their own lives. Nothing, not a goddamn thing. I'll tell you what, why don't you go get a job with that great company of yours? I believe I will. I believe you won't. Artesia is where we went down to. It's an extraordinary place. The weight of the sky is just something indescribable. I mean, it's a magic place. It really is New Mexico. I'd never seen real cowboys, and I mean, these cowboys were nothing like the film cowboys. They were skinheads with tattoos and rings through their noses and ears, and they would dance with their spurs on. We went to a nightclub, and a makeup artist came with us. His name was, um, was it Justin? Or makeup artist and his wife Marilyn so this gorgeous wife that he had he was sort of um, a slightly fey young man and a cowboy came over to us and he said how long are you all in town and he hid behind me he said just the week <laughs> <laughs> it's just as an old village in England in the medieval times immediately someone comes in it's Suspicious. Oh, God, now, to go, go down to Devon, to some of those villages, if you walk through the door, the entire pub stops talking. They all look at you. I mean, even to this day. And even for an Englishman to pick up roots and go and try and live in a village other than the one that he was born in is very difficult. He'll never be regarded as being one of the crowd all of his life. I think that's a quality of human beings. Yeah. Those policemen just... They look all modern, but they're quite immediately suspicious. Oh, oh. Are you all right? It's all right. You're all right now. We're on the pistol. Oh, God. This was our way of going up and down. We don't know. We, we don't know how he traveled, really. His uh, musculature is slightly either atrophied or it's affected tremendously by the, the gravity of the earth. He has walking problems as well. I mean, it even comes down to very mundane things. You know, very often sailors, certainly captains that, uh, of ships and sailors that, and flyers get a different kind of, it can be motion sick when they're not in control of it, when they're, when they're not in charge. But basically, it's a, it was a different kind of movement. I wanted to have him in natural form. You know, this is not his natural environment. And people get sick in all kinds of ways and different in their unnatural environment. It's science fiction, but also life, you know, it's human science fiction, isn't it? There are, there are scenes, a human scene, and not, um, it's disquieting for that, you know, it's not so strange. Are you okay? I probably think that's true, it won't be so strange. 
whatever we find out won't be that different. Disquieting, because it won't be familiar. But how the familiar is different, anyways. Obviously, can't keep his food down either. <laughs> Egg white, wasn't it? Yeah, Whatever very, else. Very enthusiastic been. prop man. Oh, Tommy, Tommy Rayburn. That's enjoyed right, Tommy all, Rayburn. Enjoyed all the, <laughs> the foulness and the phlegm. <laughs> Any phlegm required today, Governor? <laughs> this scene is just joy and, and lunacy. They're not hurting each other, but they're quite lonely people. But not hurting each other. What's the Bunwell film with the two girls playing the one part? Obscure Object of Desire. Obscure Object of Desire is, is an example, in a sense, of found art for whatever reasons. Uh, two girls play one part. I've heard the story told a couple of ways. You know, I've heard that it was an accident of of availability and I've heard that it was planned. Well, maybe it's some of both, I don't know. Or the black and white sequences in If. I've heard this, different stories on that one, that they were planned and that the color film wasn't available for those sequences. I don't know how this scene would be today although there's not an official censorship in, in America. There's a, it isn't a governmental thing, it's self-censorship. You can only say in generalization, I don't believe in censorship. In me, there's some sort of self-censorship. Trouble is that when nobody is trusted with their self-censorship, and who to trust with their censorship. He senses Dr. Bryce in this scene. I wanted to keep it as natural as possible. What are the other senses, not some extraordinary sense, the other senses that could be human senses that we've just not explored deeply enough. We've got diverted from in, in, a, in a technological time, you know. I mean, they're not totally extraterrestrial senses. It's possible. One gets sixth sense. One has a sense that something's happening. We talk about it, but we're putting it into a very back, onto the back burner, but it's not so alien. You know, people say, I knew you were going to telephone. Well, I'm damned. I, you know, we've all been through those experiences of, I was thinking of you only this morning when the phone went, you know. But we just dismissed that in awe and aghast at um, morphing or something. You know? <laughs> We cannot understand that other sense, those other senses at all. We understand how to do things, but that, um, we've followed for the past few hundred years that technical science, haven't we? We've followed a technical science and not the others called mystical or whatever, and it's sort of graduate that all those words are pejorative, you know, and so that's become shrunken. The shrunken science, it's the tiny little shrunken things that alternative nonsense and it's only because they haven't been nurtured very much in the past few hundred years. It was only a brief moment in time, as Mr. Hawkins might say. One of these days, 
days you had to try one of these. I think possibly if I do generate the feeling of Newton successfully, it's because of the deconstruction that Nick was able to perform on the basic material that I brought to the role. I was quite plastic in that way, you know. It, it was virtually easy for Nick to guide me into any area that he wanted to, like the good alchemist that he is. And I think it, it, there's a shadow of the life that I was living there, but it was merely a shadow. But uh, I guess in reality, the, uh, the reality is on the screen. The shadow was in the real life, if that makes any sense to you. I don't know. Yeah, but it sounds rather like Verlaine, who said, I write stories and then let them happen to me. Yes, absolutely, the planned accidents of life. I couldn't agree more. Sure. Candy Clark is an amazing actress. I saw American Graffiti, and, and she was wonderful in graffiti. It's a tremendous film in its sense of reality. All those young people were n not like actors. They all seemed the real thing, and from a, a class structure that wasn't unusual, it was not rich, it wasn't desperately poor, it was just like, a, it was a wonderful, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. It had a, as a foreigner, even as watching it in England, it had a, a great sense of life, and to put someone as real as that into it would have an even more of a strangeness. When I started, there were no film schools in, in England. I loved going to the movies, and of course there were great, great films, but they weren't in, in the culture of, the, of England, of Great Britain, they weren't something that was admired. It's quite strange, even today, it doesn't come under the Minister of Arts, it comes under the Ministry of Board and Trade, where everything else, the ballet and the theatre, and all comes under the art. But I was just as... Uh, kid going to the movies, you know, and I liked cinema. They're mainly American movies, but obviously. I thought, well, the best thing to do would be to try and work in a studio. And uh, I got a job in a cutting room. And then I worked on this dubbing. It was a cutting room that where we dubbed French films into English, so although I was in the lowest, lowest possible sort of position, but I was watching the editors, and they were, they were doing this lip-sync work on, on editolas then they had in those days. In the lunch hours, I'd sit at the editola and have it run it back. Again, this time thing happened, you know, running back in life from forward, running backwards, you know, put people back. It, it was so fresh to me. They always seem to lead such interesting lives, people who travel. The thing that fascinates me about Nick's films, all of Nick's films, is the way that buildings always look like some meddling by human beings. They look like an intrusion. From the, uh, the city shot in Walkabout to this, the city shots in this, something that man has sort of contrived to... these nonsensical things that man has created. Bank statements on each company twice a day. And, uh, I want the total figure by tomorrow. Eyes, eyes, always eyes. Nick likes eyes. Endless stuff about eyesight and seeing, which of course brings us right back to the seer, 
to Tiresias et al., but that's too heavy even for me. I was only involved in certain changes in dialogue in a very minor way. Some improvising, mostly, I think, in the fight scene where I get killed. As an actor, I, I just say what they want me to say. If they want me to improvise, I'll improvise. If they ask me for a better way of saying it, I'll try and find a better way of saying it. But I don't approach a part as an actor, as a writer. I just work for the director. And if the director really wants me to say that, unless it is hopelessly ungrammatical or lacking in any form of coherent syntax, and the character I'm playing seems possibly to have gone to college, I won't argue about it. But there are a few places where uh, I, or Nick and I, played around with some words. But for the most part, I think it's all from the script. Also in a story like The Man Who Fell to Earth, in a scenario like The Man Who Fell to Earth, where the interrelated metaphors are, are so complicated that to start arguing about uh, specifics in dialogue can be a really uh, time-consuming and ultimately fruitless task. You kind of have to go with the flow, as they say. When you're working in a film uh, of that nature, I think, it is what I admire about the guys I call the maverick filmmakers, is they have their own peculiar eye and their own peculiar ear, and you sort of tend to uh, give yourself over to it. Nick tends to laugh off the literal questions. As I recall, and I, we used to joke about it, I used to say, oh, this, you know, today we're going to do the scene that really doesn't make any sense, instead of the one we did yesterday that only makes partial sense. But it was, you know, it was a friendly joke. The dialogue, in the same way as the images, make a kind of circular poetry, a kind of wandering around what another director or another writer would lay down as the points. You know, the apprehension of it would be immediate and literal, and you could move on to the next thing. I don't think Nick ever moves on to the next thing. He just keeps zigzagging, moving around the thing, and trying to sort of capture it like a game of Go. It's very hard to talk really about somebody else's intentions in making a film that's that dense. It may or may not be dense in meaning. That's for the uh, estimable film critics to say. But it is dense in texture. And this one particularly, I mean, the allusions to uh, the musical allusions, the allusions to various pieces of art, the allusions to uh, architecture and Americana artifacts. The film is just loaded up with them, not to mention the, the endless reflections of pop culture and in all the television references. And, of course, dozens of sort of inside jokes that partly are personal comments, but also partly are just layering of meaning. You know, each time one sees the film, you can get another sort of amused giggle or another knowing aha if you concentrate on yet another image that uh, Bowie is watching for instance on television when the 16 or 20 screens are going at the same time the way it should be. no involvement no complications no danger None at all. hello Tommy I remember that I came to the set the first time with between three and four hundred books 
because um, I didn't have a permanent place because I was on the road such a lot. I used to take my entire, at that time, entire library with me. And I remember sitting in a very stone state in the living room in the hotel and Nick and Candy came in to talk with me. And I was rushing from one book to another from the complete works of Francis Bacon with a section on, uh, I think it was New Atlantis, the description of the recording studio, to some tome on Israel Regarde or something like that. And I was <laughs> just reading paragraph after, and Nick said at the end, he said, your trouble is, David, you don't read enough. <laughs> I, I was so insulted. I didn't know it was a joke. <laughs> that pretty much <laughs> shows where I was at. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea that he was taking the rise. Somebody has pointed it out later. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke, David. What did he mean, I don't read enough? Look, I've got 300 books. <laughs> Some of them first editions. <laughs> right, coincident, and it was coincidentally, I can't say it was in any way preparation. I was reading Listen, Little Man at the time. <laughs> well, it must have had some bearing on trying to tell the world of some imminent danger and uh, not succeeding. And uh, that's pretty much also part of, uh, part of Newton's agenda. Makes me feel so good. Gives me something to believe in. Everybody needs that a meaning to life. I mean, when you look out at the sky at night, don't you feel that somewhere out there, there's got to be a God? There's got to be. That somehow there's a certain, uh, a certain destiny, fate, prescience, a certain inevitability about their coming together. I think that happens in life too, that we have some sort of sets, we have our own, self-will, but the, there's something mixed in with predestination. It isn't as linear as we think it is. I guess that's what perhaps could be differently described as predestination if we don't think of it as an entirely linear affair from back to front. Our will is to change it, but it will happen again in a different form, this, but it is all happening at once. <laughs> you can come in, Tommy. Don't be embarrassed. We did a lot of handheld work. We were shooting in natural locations, and, and um, they were virtually motel. A lot of them were just motel rooms, and and a question of fitting people in. We just had no no space for dollies. It was before the Steadicam. The operator was a wonderful man, Gordon Heyman, who there's an extraordinary relationship between the director and the operator. He is the eye, he's your eye, and, and I was very lucky. I've enjoyed working with him many, many times. He's an extraordinary operator, but on many occasions, even he couldn't get into the room, so with me at the same time and the actors, so I had to, to operate myself on a lot of that handheld stuff. But I didn't like to. <laughs> He's such a wonderful operator. We've handed song sheets out today of an old English hymn. I presumed, I don't know why, I probably because I was arrogant enough to think it's so, 
therefore I acted upon it, that I had been asked to write the music for this film. And I spent two or three months putting bits and pieces of material together. I had no idea that nobody had asked me to write the music for this film. In fact, it had been an idea that was banded about. And I constructed a thing which in the death never became the soundtrack to the movie, but became the album Low. Some of it went on to uh, Station to Station, but uh, another chunk of it went on to Low, the, which was the album that I did with Brian Eno in Berlin a few years later. I'm rather glad that happened. Actually. So am I. Well, as it happens, the Low album then was performed on Friday and Saturday night this weekend by Philip Glass. It was turned into a symphony. So I think The Visitor, it would have been The Visitor. And I think that's quite lovely that this should be coming out again in its original form, alongside Lowe, which has been sort of dusted off and released again. When Lowe came out, I was really quite thrilled that it, I can't who came out, only David could know that, but prompted somehow by the film or the experience. But um, I remember, as David said, he worked on it. We had a time thing, and so that was not abandoned, but it, it was nothing formal, and it drifted away. And I think he became involved in another concert tour, and it drifted away. But yeah. uh, as it went things. away. Yeah, it went away. <laughs> Leave but, me alone. Leave my mind alone. I was rather glad that it, because it gave it another connection and somehow continued on. Yeah, um, there have been links all the way through. So I had to move on, we moved on, and and I'd known John Phillips, and he'd, he'd, I showed him the stuff, and he loved it, and he knew David, and it was all right with David. And, but some time later, David sent me the album of Low. He said, this was the music I think I would have done for Man Who Fell to Earth. In fact, he used a still from Man Who Fell to Earth on the cover of the album, you know? It's an extraordinary album, Low. It's a wonderful stuff. The train, you know, she talks about like going on trains in Oklahoma with, with her granny and the train that he left on. Bloody train. <laughs> I remember, Nick, when the train come, it was nothing like the thing that he did visit. Am I correct in this? And that train rolled up in the middle of the desert. He, he went blue in the face, then he went red and then white. What is that? It's your train, sir. That's not a train, it's a fucking dog kennel. But we live with it, and as it happens, it has an endearing quality to yeah. the train. That It's so sweet to look at that, and then the freight train that I see from the window. Concession stands were gone. And there's our train. I think Candy's, one of Candy's best little monologues is her monologue in the car, waiting for the train to go past. I love that scene. It's a shame. I used to like trains. Sooner, as I say, sooner or later, all things are connected. All knowledge, all action is connected. But not necessarily in a constant flow. No matter what we do, sooner or later it is known. You c you're always seen. It came out of a joke when Paul and I were working one night. You know, either one of us, I don't, can't remember which one, <laughs> had uh, been somewhere in the afternoon. Perhaps we'd said, oh, I'm, I'm busy this afternoon, I can't make it. And the car was parked outside another house. And quite out of the blue, someone said, oh, I saw your car in Chelsea this afternoon. What were you doing in Chelsea? You were know, always seen, sooner or later, you know. 
There's a scene when, when uh, we realize this stranger has, is coming down a, a coal heap, slag heap, and a person comes in and, on the brow of the hill and, and uh, sees him. That's all. He sees him. Much later in the film, when he's asked, did anybody see you? And he says, no, nobody, nobody saw me. And of course, he was seen. I guess in the normal course of narrative, we would have seen that man who saw him go away and say, yeah, he's moving into the little town, and uh, no, we don't know. But someone saw him, and we're always seen. It's very difficult not to be. I love our rides in the country, don't you, honey? This scene is the closest thing, without trying to get into special effects, of a crossing and an immediacy of time. Here, the, this pioneer family, they see something, this vehicle. It's not a space vehicle. It's something that is going to happen in the world, a motor car. The, that's the, I, the science fiction part of it, that only that little pioneer family, that little group, couldn't even I say, it's a, what is it? They say, look at that, and they look, and it's gone. They would probably dismiss it, or when they reached wherever they were going from their camp, they would he'd say, we saw this strange thing. Sure, yeah, yeah, okay, listen, let's put the chow on. <laughs> so that would be dismissed. This is a science fiction film with not a lot of science fiction tools in it. But let's say without quoting other films, there are many science fiction films that have a certain familiarity, so you're happy with it. You know, the spaceship, the alien with a big head, you know, we were trying to, to make it disquieting and an alien sense of film. What we were trying to aim at was that sense of even the familiar is strange. Even the familiar is strange, looked at in a different way, thought about in a different way. No, it was all shot on location, the whole film was shot on location, except for a tiny bit in the special effects studio, a couple of days at all. So we were there in New Mexico, eight weeks, nine weeks maybe, I think five days in Los Angeles. The distances were the main thing, you know. <laughs> Pretty big area, <laughs> the white sands and Santa Fe and Artesia. Nick's is an extremely difficult editing pattern, and I don't think it could ever be submitted to a storyboard because much of it is is made up afterwards. I've seen flaws in what we call standard continuity quite a number of times, but they don't matter because that's not what the scene intends to do. It, there are peculiarities of the clothing or lack of it in one of the love scenes things sort of get on and off with a mind of their own. But that's not what the scene is about. It's about, oh, the, the, there's this, I remember this. Oh, yeah, and I remember that, and there's that. You know, you, your, your memory doesn't reconstruct it all and then put it, put it all right if you're thinking about a number of things that happen in the course of an evening or the course of an hour or the course of a minute. You don't then just re-edit it, put it all together in its proper form and rethink it. And to a certain extent, I think Nick shoots or thinks or edits like that. 
you know, there are guys like Nick that you think he should be on a MacArthur grant or something. Just let him go. Let him go out and shoot the stuff. Sometimes it's not as good as others, but who cares? He just ain't a studio guy. But I think he could make a great traditional film. I'd love to see him do it. What is the nature of this project, Mr. Newman? Here I am, older, but no wiser. No one else seems to age. They look very young. Candy looks like she's about 15. Get yourself some sleep, Mr. Farnsworth. Good night. What does that mean? Some of the makeup took several, well, not several hours, a couple of hours. It wasn't bad. We are embarking on some sort of... I think the wig could have been improved upon, but that's hindsight. The main problem was because of a, an early start to get the makeup on, I couldn't even begin to go out drinking with the English crew the night before. Nobody's a freak. What do you see in the cards? Nothing. See, see. All about seeing. What does he see in the cards? What do I see through those glasses? Filmmakers like Nick express a number of very personal concerns. And those personal concerns are not necessarily immediately apparent to somebody who's watching the work. They are obsessive in both the nature of the text and in the way they're made. I don't think Nick makes it easy for an audience, and he doesn't make it easy because he wants to make it hard for them. He makes it difficult because that's the way he thinks. Our audience, our general film audience, is simply not trained to put disparate elements together in a narrative. They are concerned, as studios are concerned, with the basic idea and the explication of that idea, not on the lowest denominator level necessarily, but to make it, no matter how arty the thing is, to make it understandable from scene to scene so that nobody gets lost, so that nobody has to think during a film, oh, I see, that connects to that and that connects to that. That's supposed to happen automatically in most movies. Nick doesn't make them that way. I, I don't know why we should think of films any differently than we think of, of music or painting. And those of us who think about them seriously don't. You know, there is inevitably not going to be as big an audience sitting in the opera house for a uh, difficult piece written in the 12-tone style than there is going to be for Mozart, or for Verdi, for that matter. But that doesn't make the audience for the difficult stuff any less passionate or the work any less good. It simply, by its nature, makes for a smaller audience. Is that Mr. Farnsworth's house? No, sir, that belongs to Mr. Newton. I think when we are all strangers in a strange land, even in our own families we are alone and that the idea of trying to make some kind of contact words don't help tremendously in making contact with people 
It's very difficult to make true contact without sight of person. I've always, unless that's a, a state and a tragic state of, of blindness. But uh, then, the lover's oldest question is, "What are you thinking, darling? You know, what are you thinking? You know, what, not what you're saying. Do you love me? Of course, I love you. What, what are you thinking? I was thinking about you. You know. Then, what are you really thinking? Actually, I was thinking about a divorce. <laughs> the, the contact, we're always trying to make that contact. I think with cinema, we try to do that. I felt that, is there anybody out there? You know, we do it with our work. We express ourselves with our work of who we are, very much. And uh, I think every kind of work, all work, is part of our offer, fortunately, I mean, or in the cinema, and it's more obvious or in the theater or in an artist or a painter or a writer can it's more directly but they're only saying hello is there anybody out there if three people in the audience say i know what he meant you know this touched me your emotions have been in contact with that person you know that's a very it's a thrilling thing i mean it's it's when i've given in on points which you have to at times you know because you think maybe I'm, because there are doubts, everybody has doubts about the truth of themselves. Lots of thoughts come into mind. Am I doing this out of arrogance or am I doing this out of willfulness or God knows what? So that um, when that doubt comes up, and in many, many cases, sometimes, not always, but but many cases, I haven't got what I felt across, but damn, I wish I'd done that scene. I haven't been that truthful. But that's what we're doing with our work. I think we're trying to make contact, knowing somewhere behind it that you never will finally do it. Just getting close, just getting close. The painter is never final. Oh, that's that's my masterpiece. You <laughs> know, that's it. You know, only nature has masterpiece. The rest is never quite made it. Otherwise, it would be complete. No, they had a, a similar physicality, the fine skin, the bone structure, very fine, very slim, and that gave them a, and that passage of time, they became more comfortable. There's a shot when they are lying in bed that seemed to be comfortable for both of them. I wanted them to lie in those patterns, and how it is with the intimacy of a relationship, you, begin after the initial months or whatever of sleeping away that you in a head on your arm that actually gives you pins and needle in the hand you know you don't want to disturb but then you gradually get the pattern of your know, physicality that matches and you adopt each other's behavior patterns each other's expressions unknowingly because it's a way of communicating it was also linked with a thought I had that how often old people with long, long years of relationship through manner, attitude, but even physically grow to look alike. What is this music for us? I keep singing. I don't like it. Some giant composer. I think a pertinent point is that his choice of music is Roy Orbison. I thought that was so lovely because of all the rock stars, Roy seemed like the alien. 
He really wasn't quite the same as anybody else, from his strangely shaped head to his glasses, and everything about him pointed to him being the outsider. I love the use of Orbison in it. Orb, of course. Don't turn on those damn TVs. Come on, Tommy. The uh, gynecological aspects of this scene always intrigue me. It's one of my favourite. The still that was taken from this, I thought, was fabulous. The gynecological in the chair. In the stirrup. Yes, and the slightly mummy-looking character that I... Sort of mummy unleashed. Mummy with his head wrapped off. So mummy in a gynecologist's chair made perfect sense to me. <laughs> the fact that he could, in fact, hear all those TVs and take in all that information. Yeah, but the curious thing is, that now, this was pre the the telecommander and the clicking oh. through the stations. You know, so now, I mean, my kids watch four and five programmes at a time. Through, through the commercials, they just... That's the, the damnation for the four networks, isn't it? It was the telecommander. And they have on every television set you can put in the centre of what you're watching and have a look at what's on the other stations. Just have all 18 screens on at once. Why not? The fact that he's picking up all, all the human needs, it seems, to him, the, 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 and sort of being introduced to the ideas of violence, the, the superficial elements of sex and, and love, and uh, that lovely betrayal shot, of course. Billy Budd. Yes, Billy Budd. The extraordinary Terence Stamp. Absolutely incredible. But these obsessive images of violence and destruction and being connected eventually with the sexual act, which really, I mean, I presume you agree, but these are probably some of the most hostile and violent sexual scenes that one can think of in a movie. The bodies in the sex scenes are almost slug-like as well, in the way they're shot and the lighting that's used. Quite repellent. <laughs> the selection of images using a telecommander is quite extraordinary. I mean, it does go into a oneness, what Mr. Newton says. You see everything on television, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you the same, you keep on seeing it, you have so much choice. It's rather like nature in a way. It sounds weird, but um, very difficult to contemplate anything singly in nature, isn't it, when you go in, out into the countryside. If you come with a fixed idea, nature and, and circumstances, they're waiting to, for you to see it, not, oh, God, it's sunny. I thought it was going to be, you know, we had this written as a, a, a rainy day, and I'd always thought of it as a rainy... You'd always thought of it as a rainy day. Or, well, it's sunshine's out. Get it? Or, conversely, I saw the lovers on the beach in the setting sun as they say goodbye, you know, and it rains. That's nature. It's life. It's also part of the film. Mr. Farnsworth, yes, Sprite. Is everything all right? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I, I'm baffled. I've been here for so long now, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. There's always somebody talking about something a little different than what they're really talking about to the person they're talking to. I'm afraid I know nothing about liquid gas, Dr. Bryce. What I called to tell you is that... I mean, if Nick sees something that reminds him of something, he'll shoot it. He shoots the metaphor as though it's a literal thing. But it occurs to me over the years, looking at films of the guys I admire, 
from Houston to Tarkovsky, if I can set up sort of a giant parameter, there is a kind of subtext that's as powerful as the text itself. Where it is, of course, most commercially successful is where the text is most apprehensible to an audience. That's on the Houston end, where it is further and further from the programmatic moving toward Tarkovsky, for instance, it becomes more poetic and less literary. And Nick is edging toward the Tarkovsky, I would say, finding new ways to express fairly old ideas, which is what, of course, artists do. Tomorrow, Dr. Bryce. Huh? Who are you? Don't be suspicious. He hasn't got any other power than possibly extensions of our own, you know, maybe more refined. Maybe we'll have Mr. Newton's senses and understanding in well, 50, 100 years, maybe. Who knows when, but they're not, they're only extensions of what could possibly be human brain power ability, you know. That, what is it, the imagination's only bound by experience, and uh, we can't imagine anything beyond our experience. Mr. Newton has been away, hasn't he? Yes, sir. He come in this morning. Making use of the moment, the chauffeur was, was in fact, um, Bowie's chauffeur who arrived with him and comfortable with him. It fitted well to my thought of things, I guess. I think, when I'm looking back, I think it did, because it seemed, as David said, right ride with the driver who then stayed the driver of Mr. Newton in the film, and he is the driver. While I'm watching it, it's growing for me as well. I'm thinking, how on earth did that happen? You know, it's very difficult to say how this was the plan I had, you know, and seizing the moment that, that say, oh, yes, I always wanted the big limousine, you know, but there was, I can't really refer to it that way. Mr. Newton is waiting, sir. Dr. Bryce? I'm Newton. We've met before, right? I've always thought of film in general as the closest thing to a time machine. You know, that I remember as a boy, I, was, I loved the, the story of the time machine with H.G. Wells. I think it's something, because we've lived with the two generations have lived with the cinema, we have pictures of the past and, and the future will be able to look at the past all the time and see it and listen to people from the past. I know that uh, there was a little poem by Dermot May. It talks about, the poem talks about... Uh, watching dead people a lot of the time on television. <laughs> John Wayne, you know, the children become fans of dead people. That's never happened before, you know, I mean, this, is, this, this century has been the most extraordinary thing. That, I, I suppose, I think that was the thing that drew me tremendously to the story, you know, this, this time sense. And that's what I tried to get into the film, the sense that time wasn't so particularly delineated. It seemed a, a great story about time, you know, they age in it at different speeds. 
This is some kind of space vehicle, right? We thought of him really, Mr. Newton, as no more than an astronaut from another, a slightly more advanced civilization. Not, not that uh, he was just would know about things that rather like a rather one of our own that landed on a planet that was fifty years behind us. This story, the story of a traveler from another place, an alien, you know. The science fiction side of it, of course, appealed to me because I liked that, uh, the freedom that science fiction gives you. Is this a weapon? A weapon? Well, it's too small for interplanetary travel. Assume that it's a weapon. Does that matter to you? Yeah. If I thought that you were building a, a weapon, you were employing me to help you, I'd have to quit the project. Don't be suspicious. We're living in daily in a science fiction type age. As far as machines and technology is concerned, every day something science fiction-like. All the extraordinariness of time and destiny. Just dealing in material things. And I think there's very little in this that's um, startling in its material sense. I remember when Paul Meisberg and I were working on the script, we thought he would be dealing in software to keep undercover, not come up with some with laser beam eyeballs or some extraordinary way of, of converting grass into gold, but something that was only a little bit ahead of its time. I remember when they talked about the camera, we thought about a camera, buy the film, throw the camera away. That would make a lot of money. Just buy a roll of film, a camera attached to it. And everybody said, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would they ever do that? And about five, I thought, well, maybe in 50 years' time, or it's different. Difficult to think of things like that. Unless it's too absurd, which we thought that was. And then six years later, I was at Los Angeles Airport and saw Fuji. I brought out that camera. Now people buy film, throw the camera away. Maybe they saw the movie, Fuji saw the movie and thought it was a good idea. Well, anyhow, for Ad Astra. I beg your pardon? That's Latin. Latin? You must know that in England. Royal Air Force, their motto. Yes. Per Ardua, Ad Astra, through difficulties, through the stars. You could make a case, I think, that the literal level doesn't apply, that he isn't an alien, that he doesn't come from another planet, but he is one of society's peculiar uh, outsiders who lives his life as though he were, etc. When I see this film, I think a lot about men like well, I, I'm not going to say his name, but a, a figure in American literature who was in his youth one of the sort of white hopes of American literature, but who descended slowly into a kind of madness where he actually did think, when I first met him in Europe, he did think that there were alien forms in the world, people from other planets, and he alone could recognize them. This was after publishing a novel or two that were highly thought of, and he was considered to be an up-and-coming major literary figure. 
And as his schizophrenia took hold of him, he became more and more part of the, the world he'd constructed, the crazy world, and less and less a part of the real world, so that he finally wasn't able to write it all. And when Bowie sits alone at the end of the movie with his hat over his, covering his face, it always reminds me of this guy I'm thinking of sitting in a cafe where I met him in Rome, and others like him who are victims of their own peculiar genius. New Mexico is, has a certain mystical sense to it, which I wasn't aware of, I must say, at the time. It was inevitable because the, the space launch program was there, I also wasn't aware of at the time. So when it came out, it was probably for pragmatic reasons. And then it was the film commission that was, <laughs> was one of the main reasons, <laughs> probably in the budget. But, but I guess it was really always going to be made there. It was a, a right prophetic little number in terms of <laughs> the hardware and stuff. The film possibly preempted some of the things that came after it, with its holograms and its instantaneous printing cameras and the spherical ball that plays music and whatever, the, the kind of the, the way it was dressed, I guess. You see, at another level, for me, the film remains a story of betrayal rather than anything else that has the dressing of science fiction. Um, for me, it has that spiritual thing, the, the Christ story and whatever has elements of that in it. The moment that Newton realizes the, the cameras have taken his pictures, for me, is a religious moment. It harks back for me to the, the Bible story of Jesus knowing that he's going to be betrayed, and Newton knows he's going to be betrayed. It's quite obvious. But he seemingly doesn't do much about it. So there must be some other reason for his being here. Coming to conclusions about people, that's what a lot of what the film is about, coming to decisions about trust and betrayal. Mr. Newton made his money out of software. He had to hide himself. You know, so it was not super technology. It was just a little before it started to be able to be disguised as software. You know, for cosmic yuppie. That way, I don't think that the hardware got in front. I hoped it didn't get in front of the movie. I mean, maybe Blade Runner is a good example. Looking back now at it, I mean, the hardware was so fantastic in it. They got in front of the intentions. You see it happening, don't you, in morphing now. These Michael Jackson face changes in his video. Now you see on every commercial. It's, hardware is very quickly accepted. Very, yeah, it's yeah. over. You know, and it has very little to say in itself at all. I mean, it's just used cosmetically like that. But I think that the one thing possibly, and sorry to go back to one of my things, it's not the intention of this interview at all. But uh, to pick up on that point, I don't think he would have had such sustaining power if it was just a question of pushing forward the cosmetic, and I use that pun lightly, aspects of Ziggy. I think there was something more inherently disquieting about him, from his sexuality to his isolationist positioning to the fact that he possibly had a, a deviant kind of plan in his mind that is not the accepted norm with rock singers.
so I think you know the hardware it's reduced down to such a sort of a, a cheap currency these days I'm not at all impressed with hardware or anyway the way that it's used the way that it's presented to us it's a is cheap very cheap the frightening thing is that the acceleration of technology and our capabilities for inventing it is so vast and it's accelerated to such a point that we are now totally incapable of understanding that which we've created. We really have created a monster. Do you think we'll eventually evolve into creatures who think and talk ably in fragmentation, which is the only way to go if we're to make any kind of use of this kind of... I think probably so plethora of information that we have because there's far too much now for a any of us to really absorb so, and we're just increasing it daily it's uh, a no-win situation so we have to evolve to that kind of being to be able to cope with the things that we've invented because they're far raced far ahead of us our things know much more than we do yeah in specifics but we know far more of a pattern as you said it'll be Speaking in telegrams, I think people will yeah. speak in. Well, we are. Look, look at the things that, another way we watch commercials. Sound bites. Yeah, sound bites. Sound bites. Sound bite. What I miss is sort of the in-depth implications of the things that we say, that sometimes conversations are reduced to sound bites, I find, which is terribly annoying. You might cover more ground, but you don't cover it as, as thoroughly at all. But uh, the reflecting on music, I mean, there's a, obviously a need to get away from hardware because I think the most vital and dynamic music at the moment is made on very low-tech machinery. And there's even a thing of trying to dirty up tracks coming from uh, urban music and from rappers and uh, such. Um, there's a feeling of, of, of ignoring the high-tech thing altogether to get away from it, to sort of avoid it. And I guess in the arts, a return to figurative painting, um, to get away from the conceptualism of neon light bulbs lying against a wall and all that. There's a big return to needing that tactile, organic feel again. You know what happened with sound originally? I've always felt it's either come too early or too late to the cinema. In the silent days, they would just use it, they were using images to tell the story. Then this great miracle, you could, act, you could actually hear the people, just as great a miracle as seeing them. This other miracle came that their voices were still alive, which is in some ways even more mysterious because not only are they are pictures of them, after all, the pictures are closely allied to portraits and things, so we can see what. I don't know, King Charles looked like, or President Lincoln, and thing, but to actually hear him. And now came this amazing thing, sound. And we hear Caruso, ah, and hear people. But it, it either should have come at the same time, or else earlier, or else much later, that it had really been established, the telling of pictures by telling of stories with pictures. But it came, and what happened? They rushed to novelists and people that had only dealt not with the visual image but with the written word to write the dialogue for the people because people got suddenly immersed we we're just getting to understand reading pictures it held up film for a long time
You can stay on here. The house is yours. I've transferred enough to your bank account. I don't want the house or your money. I want to be with you. You don't know anything about anybody. You, yes, you know certain bits that you've found out or that uh, inevitably have been revealed. And the promises, you know, it's about secrecy and lovers' promises of, of, of tell me, tell me, I won't care, did you fuck her, you know, did you, it won't matter to me, I just must know. <laughs> All right, I did. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> you swear. It is quite human. Although alien, but the alien as the human, and he said, "All right, if you must know, how do you like this?" You know, it's not dissimilar from the reaction that would be just on a simple confession to an affair. You want to know who I am? I'll tell you. The lovely irony of this is that she walks into the scene dressed as a Japanese girl, and with her. I'll show you what I am, takes her Japanese wig off, if you'll show me what you are. <laughs> so he does. You won't find anyone who'd do for you like I've done for you. Great screen acting is, is in reacting. And years ago when I was working in, as an assistant, I'd watch the movie stars of those days. You know, working in England, a lot of... American films were made in England then, and um, American screen actors would come and give lines away because they wanted, they knew that nine times out of ten, when the film came to be cut, it would be on the reaction rather than the, the line of dialogue. Let's say a man comes home and his wife or girlfriend has been out in the afternoon and in some love affair, and we see him pass by the sitting room and calls in, you have a good day today, honey, you know. You're bound to be on the woman's face because you've known what has gone on in the afternoon. You won't be on on the man asking the line and miss what her reaction is. You know. Such a lovely shot, this. I've seen this shot borrowed so many times since this film. Just added to the general vocabulary of filmmaking, that shot. In those days... <laughs> Contacts tended to be the hard contacts, these great, huge plastic things that really hurt the eye. They really, really hurt very badly. And I had two sets. I had the hard ones that went in that were the cat's eyes, and then on top of those I had the little rubberized ones that went in. But the cat's ones gave me a, a, a lot of problems because I was particularly dehydrated <laughs> at that stage, and the desert didn't help. I just never seemed to be it's lubricated. Oh, it was all because they fit right over the eyeball. Yeah. God, the contact lenses were very early days for those those contact lenses, and nice having them fitted. When we went down to the opticians, David was 
a bit worried about his eyes. Well, obviously, I, I said, I can't, I couldn't, I don't know how you can do this, but Candy was amazing. She said, oh, I don't mind. She, they all both went down. Because Candy plays the part of the wife as well, you know. Um, this optician, he'd got them back. They'd been made up. He said, well, try one in. Put it in Candy's eye and went, <coughs> sucked onto it and could not get it out. Was stuck, he could not get it out. It fitted too exactly on. <coughs> Sucked right over the ball, this yellow cat's eye. We were, I think, about an hour and a half. He was trying to puzzle out, we were going to get her to a specialist. And finally it came off. But she never, can you imagine? I just thought of it to me, maybe she was quite ill. Terribly naughty, Nick. <laughs> I worked for a cameraman called Joe Ruttenberg, you know. He was a great American cameraman. Taught me a lot about cinematography, how different it is from straight photography, and you know, what you learn from what you can give to the scene and what you can understand and you, how closely you have to work with the with the making of the film, the atmosphere of the film, not for the beauty of your own photography. He once said to me, you know, Nick, you, this has nothing to do with heaven, because I then started taking photographs from stills, and he said, that's good, understand what you're doing with photography and how to... But you're not out to get a um, fellow of the Royal Society of Photographers, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the movie that is important, it's the movie. I hate the idea of an art film. It's film, you know, that uh, it's trying to find the truth of the film, that's all. I'm not. If you set about making an art film, that's as ridiculous as trying to set about a, try, a solely commercial film. It's always confusing. You know, what touches people? You know? Who knows? Who in the hell knows? There are no formulas. There are, nobody knows. You know, some great commercial art has become great art too, because it was the truth of the matter. You know, Toulouse-Lautrec's paintings were posters. They became great art because they were wonderful. They touched things, you know, La Goulou, and the, they had a moment of, you could see the reality. It was the first look at reality. You would see the pain of his life, you know, this desperate, crippled man's life was in the joy and the thrill of those pictures. And it is art because it involved people and touched their emotion. You know, I really don't believe in the idea of art films and, and commercial cinema, I think that all film inevitably has has a effect. For me, the word entertainment, it means in involvement as well, to be entertained by something. It just, you know, that's why every word has a, has a different kind of connotation to whoever uses it. Poets use words differently from, with another sense to them, from their exact dictionary meaning, you know, to me, the word entertainment means involvement, you know, to be involved in something, to become, to entertain conjecture of a time, and to think about something. Not to be so slightly involved that you're distracted only. That's a pretty, oh God, she's pretty and that's great. What a great dance. I wonder if I put the cat out. Oh, oh, that, hey, that's nice. That's pretty. That's good. I like that. And Oh shit, tomorrow I've got to see the boss. You know, that, that's distract, just to be distracted. To be in, suddenly involved, taken into something, that is what 
has come to be, oh, do I have to think too hard? Is that an art film? That's what they begin to say, that's an art film. You've got to think, you've got to become involved, so lost in it that it's touching some thoughts of your own. My desire can turn to disgust so quickly. It's curious, isn't it? That happens so quickly in our own emotions. Desire and disgust. I can't do it. I always thought it was a shame that she was so repulsed by him because I thought he actually cut a very attractive figure as an alien. <laughs> Probably a lot more attractive than Newton himself <laughs> in his uh, human guise. I think it was probably the squishy bits she didn't like. <laughs> the film isn't over when it's shot. It's not over, as in Eureka, it's not over till it's over. I mean, it's still a living thing, it's still being made. It isn't just that it's, all the scenes are shot that's how our life is, isn't it? You know, it isn't just this exchange, and me watching this film and trying to remember it. I'm also trying to put in to what I'm talking about, the film, to how my reaction is sitting here talking in this room with the film running in front of me. What My mind's racing through all sorts of periods of time and in an effort to explain what I was trying to explain in the movie. It's very difficult. It's not as detached from me as, oh, I did that on, you know, because of so and so and so and so. I'm not quite sure. It was just attitudes and emotions I was trying to put over. So I sh was shooting it and it was occurring to me and things were changing at the time. And now looking at it, and, I, and since then I've changed because that has grown on me. Something of that has been left on me. But to go back and look at, to d define and delineate what it was that actually prompted me. It's very difficult. It's rather like the question, did you have a happy childhood? Yes. But it's not what you're thinking. So it's very difficult. That's why I like shooting a lot. And I like it to be open. I like it to be open. You don't know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. It will be different. No matter what you plan, it will be different. I thought we'd have a happy time here. Yeah. It's like going on a second honeymoon. Then we can't do it. It will be different. Life is always different. It's a drying planet of some kind, obviously, as our own. But um, technology had out-technologized itself, but to a sort of simple, into a simple form, but a different, a different route, not the internal combustion. It had gone beyond, far beyond jet propulsion, but some sort of sail and some heat, who knows, but something that that looked primitive in terms of that culture, but seeing that remnants of something that had been very advanced, but gradually through lack of, of resources, through lack of material, had fallen into dereliction and uh, not just 
didn't go, but had wasn't being done that way anymore. I've never really watched a film of my own before, from from beginning to end, after it's been made. Certainly not after this length of time. It's, because my life is there. You know, I can I can see the moments as I watch the shots. I can see the moments and the day that I spent doing them with the people. And it's a very strange sense of living one's past. <laughs> awesome, rather frightening. The line of dialogue here. <laughs> it was a, the only time I've ever spoken to a critic. No, it was Muse. The one line he picked out, who didn't like the movie, but the one line he picked out was um, David's at the end, that all things begin and end in eternity. He said, beginning such ridiculous lines as all things begin and end in eternity, which is from a poem of Blake's. <laughs> I thought, I can't resist this. I, <laughs> I phoned him, I won't say what. And I said, uh, I was just curious, I mean, I have no quibble with you, you know, you didn't like the movie, but I was just curious why you picked on that line. He said, I just thought it was, well, you know, Sun's Down, Mr. Roe, you'd see film very quickly, but it just struck me as, as really trite. I said, no, don't you like Blake? It seemed to fit so perfectly, and it's such, from such, he's such a mystical poet, Blake, you know, that, uh, <laughs> But the one line of all, it's rather amusing, the one line of it, I mean, there are many, <laughs> Paul, Paul laughed, he, said, he didn't pick any of my lines that were stupid. <laughs> the one line he picked was William Blake. I'm better than Blake, Paul. <laughs> embarrassing, you know, to pick the one piece of poetry that was Shakespeare. <laughs> That's <what> That's crap. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> seen their footsteps in their places. I've seen those things, we've all seen them. That's for theorists, I'm a scientist. Well, I'm not a scientist. But I know all things begin and end in eternity. What are you gonna do? They should have had Bryce say bullshit afterwards. <laughs> all things begin. <laughs> oh, not more of your bullshit, <laughs> Mr. Newton. <laughs> People from another place are often like aliens, you know, and I liked the idea that a person in another society, you know, that's, that's something we haven't quite got used to yet either. Even in our little, on our little planet, we're not, um, we're still strangers in a strange land wherever we go, you know, that we bring our needs and desires and that we're, that grew out of our particular little community, you know, still, we're not, we're not yet world travelers in the complete sense, so let alone space travelers. You know, that, uh, in many, many ways, it seems even as far to go before the world is that familiar with itself. You can see the breaking up of, of whole countries again, wanting to be, be small, and their needs and uh, particular to themselves, communities. So that interested me, that the fact that it could be analogous, that you know, Mr. Newton was a, was a 
point in it when he says, when he's asked, where are you from? And he looks down across this great plain and on an empty road. It has the sky in the background, but he just says, from somewhere down there, you know, down, down there, where, down on the ground or down, the, down there towards the sky. Anyway. Science fiction kind of has its own agenda, aesthetically, and it intersects, I think, with the way Nick's most peculiar mind works. What's the time? It's late, past midnight. There's time on my side. This is a unique moment in the history of space Jim Lovell's in this scene, which is rather nice. This um, is Jim, Jim Lovell. And I always wanted an astronaut in it. And we tried it, and it was perfect that Jim Lovell was the one, Apollo 13, which is, he was available, you know, um, the, others, the others had dispersed about the place and had become quite private, secret people, you know. They'd um, an experience that had changed their lives. We had, it's quite interesting to find the history of the astronauts, what happened to them all, you know. The early ones, from Gagarin, who apparently ended up in a, an asylum. The experience was uh, totally extraordinary to look down on the world. You know, there's been conjecture about Gagarin having been put away because at the time, it was the height of the Cold War, to look down on the Earth, I think, what the, you know, how well conditioned as a Russian astronaut to look down and think, this is all bullshit, you know, this fighting about, this is, that's all it is, you know, this is it. What she had to do was very difficult to extend that kind of emotional tantrum over a period of some hours, however long it took to shoot. And she's not playing against anything except her own instincts. If you follow your instincts, like I think Nick does, his instincts tell him to shoot certain things and do certain things, even without knowing what he's gonna do with them later. You don't necessarily have to think up how interesting it could be beforehand. If you have enough material and enough interesting instincts, then you come upon the ideas that are valid or dramatic or workable, sometimes long after the fact. I mean, it's happened in almost every film of any worth I've been involved with. You see things that you never could possibly could have conceived of early on. It's like action painting. Pollock didn't know what he had till he was through, and he didn't know when he was through until he saw what he had. It's a more difficult way to make a film in many ways because you're on a tightrope all the time. I don't think you ever know in dailies quite what you've got. You know you've got a lot of pieces, and the pieces may or may not look interesting today and less interesting tomorrow. So there's a kind of anxiety built into that kind of filmmaking that, that isn't in traditional storytelling. And a director like Nick, I think, tries to open as much space as possible 
between the planned and the unplanned. Most directories don't do that. They don't like to for very good reasons. They have complicated time and budget scimitars hanging over their heads and a very specific story to be told in a specific amount of time. I was looking forward to this scene for, you know, obvious reasons, because it's fun to do this kind of stuff, although it was, it was physically difficult. It took a number of takes, each one was slightly different, and by the time these gentle giants, who were two members, as I recall, of the Albuquerque police force, I think they were detectives, or, or retired detectives possibly, they were really nice guys, and they were trying to be as easy with me as they could I was pretty black and blue by the time it was over. Was at the beginning, I thought they were being too gentle, and I said, you know, I mean, I'm not obviously not going to hurt you guys. I'm going to slash and kick and claw and sputter. And, but at the same time, I, you know, I had to be somewhat of a geezer, not at the top of my form physically. But by the time they dragged me down the stairs, fifth or sixth time, I felt like a battered geezer. I won't believe it. I'd never been in a science fiction film, which is a genre I particularly like in films. I got to die in it for the first time in a film, I think for the first time, and subsequent to that I've been killed a number of times, but defenestration is a, is a really interesting and peculiar way to die. And, I knew it would be beautiful to look at, I knew it would be interesting, but even if you remove most of the reasons, I probably would have accepted it anyway, because why should anyone not be in a Nick Rogue film? You know, the, the image is so dramatic, and the dummy, of course, the dummy added to it by losing its shoe, which was one of God's gifts. Nick and I talked a lot about what I would say. For some reason, he said, why don't you say the name Ruth as you go out the window? It could have been Mary or Louise or it could have been any name. I didn't really think it did anything but sort of distract to say a name that had no reference to anything. I wanted something, just a moment of so it's a kind, it could be a scream, could be a name. That something dredged from Farnsworth's past, he calls a name, and I thought a woman's name that would only have to have one sort of syllable, not Mary or something, you know, a name, a name that would form part of a scream. And I thought Ruth. And I said, but I want you to just do a couple of wild tracks on shouting Ruth. <laughs> he said, I, I don't think I can do that, Nick. I said, why not? He said, I'd feel awkward about it. I said, why is it my mother's name was Ruth? <laughs> Here we go, big guy. Very cool, Bernie was very cool and was marvelous. He's not... Uh, Bad, he's part of the system. The establishment. In reality, I guess it, it represents um, 
government, but what is government? Society's own protective mechanism. If you're in the system, you can still be a good person, especially when the system isn't overtly bad. Afterwards, one can look back and blame things. Well, history is becoming like that today, isn't it? You know, the, the stories of Columbus now. That's 500 years ago. Well, are we going to destroy, uh, in a Marcusean way, to destroy history? Probably the heroes that we have today, in 500 years' time, they'll be saying, how could they have done that? And that is the way the world has formed. You know, they wouldn't, this man is in the system, but not, it isn't a bad system, it's a confused and, and ignorant system. We, or we, were, we are continually living, if the world is evolving, in an ignorant system. You know, they thought there was the age of enlightenment at one time. Well, it wasn't, <laughs> you know. It was more enlightened than the last. Maybe we're more enlightened than the last, but this isn't the age of enlightenment either. We're living continually in an ignorant system or only as aware of what at the point we are now. His music on this was played by Cliff Townsend, who's Pete Townsend's father. Well, he died recently, well, a couple of years ago. He's a wonderful sax player. Has just been appointed special advisor to the new administration on matters of economic development in the chemical industry. Professor Canuti. Are there any major new developments that have taken place recently? The world had overtaken his ideas. He was their tool and not something that they could draw on, locked away, put away, tamed. You know, great spirit, a great spirit, a great chance for change, a great chance. He's being controlled. Who cares? Given up. The idea that he has his martini, he has, uh, you know how couples catch each other's vices, as well as virtues, hopefully, but they catch each other's vices, you know. And he drinks like Mary Lou. Uh. That was just Polaroid glasses and an angle to the sun, putting a polar screen on the camera. And as you turn the polar screen, it blackens the glass. But it's quite effective without an optical. You can do it in the camera. It's just an optical device. Maybe having been a cameraman, that might have been a help. <laughs> Nick, interestingly enough, he serviced his directors as accurately as any cinematographer has ever done, and with apparent, complete, literal understanding of the text. Pictures like Fahrenheit, or Far From the Madding Crowd, or pictures that, you know, that are seen through Nick's eye, and yet are films that made by very strong directors. Rogue perfectly well understands what the story is and how to tell it. But from his first film, from performance, you can already see it, all the concerns that obviously had been spinning around in his head. The, that thing that he loves to do, which he's done in almost every film, that juxtaposition of two different channels of activity, usually lovemaking opposed to something a bit more violent. And busting up the time inside inside the, the individual sequences, breaking it up in a sort of Godardian way, 
so Nick and lots of other directors since Godard have used that in numerous ways. And I think it reflects what memory does. If you think about a long, passionate love scene from your own life, you don't think of it in continuity. You think of moments of it. And so those guys, those directors, better reflect memory sometimes than just the straightforward telling of a sequence from moment to moment to moment in almost real time or in exact real time. It frees people of great talent and people of no talent to do things they weren't able to do before, which is, I guess, true about every step forward in, in art. They asked me to help take him. I'm helping. With the third man, the scene was the outsider, you know, the man outside. And she said, poor Harry, poor Tommy. Poor Harry. Nobody understood him. You, know, you betrayed him. Holly Martin and Dr. Bryce are very similar. Human beings, human nature is very similar. You know, Carol Reed in that great movie was dealing with, not just with a spy story, but human frailties and, and betrayals. It's not just the yarn, but Holly Martin was a friend of Harry Lyme's, or apparently. I don't want to hurt him anymore. Poor Tommy's been hurt enough. I've worked with Rip since then. You know, there's certain, certain actors who think, oh, I would just want to be around when he's performing. He's so surprising as an actor. His range is extraordinary, but he is always surprising. He doesn't draw on something that has worked before. I guess everyone does to a degree, but that's how people become, you know, the star system very often inhibits great actors. They find a vehicle that has suited them, and their agents and managers guide them. And they listen, you always have to be the hero, and you, they become a product more than the artists, you know, and very often they want to do something else, but they, you know, it's a corporation sometimes, you know, this is a, a $12 million a year corporation and you have to do that. And it, they want to sometimes do a film that, to try and get them back to their beginnings, you know, where I, where I just wanted to be an actor, you know, I don't want to have a range of portraying different things. Well, listen, you're a star now, as even though you, we want you to act the same way, you know, that, it's rather sad, that's that aspect of many actors that aren't given the opportunity of men and women, but you know, that industry takes them over. There's our watcher, our observer. So at a rational level, one presumes that, that indeed the uh, establishment have already had pre-knowledge that that capsule was going to land, they've been tracking it. But at, uh, but at a spiritual level, it rides along perfectly with Nick's maxim that you're always being watched, whatever you do. Yet again, Nick, someone is always watching you, Nick someone once said to me. <laughs> David, whatever you do, don't forget, however alone you think you are, someone is always watching you. And unlike the, you don't read enough line, I thought he was joking. <laughs> But that's the way of the world.
there's never any mention of the amount of time that's gone by in the film. There's absolutely nothing. We don't realise how closely bound to time. I mean, time slots on television and 30 seconds. I've, I've lived through a period where commercials in England used to be two minutes and a minute and a half. <laughs> the idea of 30-second commercial, the attention span in time you know, has changed. But it's still very much in our life. You know, we have our human clock and then. So in talking to the artist, and when, when Paul and I were working on the script, with that in mind, it was astounding how often mentioning time came up, and I wanted to eliminate that. And um, even with that in mind, just to show how powerful that our sense of time is, there was a scene with, with Rip Torn where they ask him how long he's been there at the, at the space station at Mr. Newton's um, complex. And he said, I've been here three months already. <laughs> and it slipped by the continuum. I, I told everybody, you know, ever any mention of a period. <laughs> we were post-sinking Rip in, in New York. And I suddenly said, stop, play that back. And he mentioned three months. <laughs> and uh, we changed, I had to take it out. But I mean, it did slip by. And at the end of the film, we had the end of picture party, and I'd got the artist's little presents and things. <laughs> and Candy Clark had never owned a watch. She said, oh, I, can't, I love that idea, because I've never, actually, I've never owned a watch. And um, that had also gone out of my mind. Her end of picture party present was a watch. She said, I cannot believe this. We've just made, spent three months making fun, and you've given me a watch. It's, it's an end of it that just slips by. <laughs> Would you have done anything different? When I've been asked many times about movies, you know, would you have done that? Of course, one would do it again. You know, yes, maybe I'd cut it a bit tighter, or maybe put in an extra line of expository dialogue. But I think people today really want to judge it on what the film originally wanted to express for itself, not for another dip into the bag then the whole audience should say, well, I like that bit. There obviously nothing is, is, is so perfect that there's not a frame out of place. You know, there's almost, it really bugged me the way he picked his nose or that. I'd like to have had it with he didn't pick his nose, you know. And, well, it really, I really didn't like the way she put the, the potatoes in the pan, you know. I never do my potatoes that way. I mean, it could be endless, you know. That, um, that's how versions come about, you know. It's, um, it's when the opinion people get in. And, and it comes out of, of nervousness, and it's un, I guess understand which is a lot invested and in trying to safeguard the investor. But rarely, very rarely, I can't really recall films that uh, have done so much better by taking five minutes out. And I guess that's why when it's released in its its original version, I think it it's a wonderful thing because. At least then, the film is speaking to whoever sees it, how it wants to speak. It's not changing the words. We see that with, with politicians all the time. You know, this is taken out of context. <laughs> this is, yeah, but you're quoting me out of context. At least we see the whole speech. We hear the whole film. You know, it isn't out of context. So at least if we didn't like it the first time, we can at least say we didn't like it the second. <laughs> I see it. Make up our own minds about it. That's why I think it's very important that films can have their say, the film must have its say, you know, completely its say.
there are all kinds of aspects of the film that I find quite contemporary. The uh, alcohol being one of the major stars of the movie, the uh, degradation and destruction that it can bring to so many relationships is made very clear if you want to read it that way. That could be quite a point of the 90s, I think. Me? The two of us? I think that its basic concept of the destructive forces that we exert on ourselves and each other, the humiliation and violence and revengefulness that we bring to our relationships is probably more understood now than it ever was in the 70s. And I think it pinpoints it far ahead of its time. I don't think that it is intrinsically a 70s movie. I find it gains strength and passion through the years. By our standards today, what was considered censorable then is absolutely lukewarm by today's standards. And something else is more censorable. You know, I mean, we see changes, don't we? And now Uncle Tom's cabin is censored and sex isn't, you know, violence isn't. And yeah. so, I mean, it's bizarre. You know, history is censored and rewritten. I mean, everything is. That, uh, that's the confusion of censorship, isn't it? Censorship is very bizarre. It's only about control, mm. crowd control. You know, that's all. It has nothing to do with morality. It's about crowd control, governmental crowd control, or you know, whatever the group it is. However, the cyclic factor in this is that the great hostility and uh, overwhelming dynamic feelings that are brought to the surface in their love scene, Newton and uh, Mary Lou's, run parallel with the uh, emphasis on violent sexual encounters in the last couple of years on screen. So, uh, yet again, it's bang up to date in that particular area. The, the blue light, that's the one thing that, that it's the slug-like look of everything under that blue light that I found. I find that very disturbing. Yes. They're saying things to each other, what they can do here, I can do anything, which is wonderful. That what is going on? Is this the person I knew? Of course you're not. Never the same person. The weird thing, it's only when they're older that they resort to other tools for eroticism. You know, yeah, they're getting into it. No, it's okay, this is a game. This scene doesn't offend young people because they think, well, is that what they need for get off on? You know, but they're, they're jaded. You don't want to go back. Nick did take our basic personas and manipulate them to suit the needs of the story that he was to tell. Quite rightly. Now, I'm very wary of people presuming that if they know enough about your life that it'll explain your art. I think that's not a sound foundation for judging an artist's work at all. Because you're not expressing a private thing that is revealed. I don't think it's very interesting half of the time. I tend to find always that the work of the artist generally is much more interesting than the artist themselves. Because they release these unknown sides of themselves. An artist very rarely knows what it is he's actually doing when he's creating something. And he often reveals depths of his uh, unconscious that he had no idea he was revealing. 
and taps into aspects of himself that hitherto he'd not touched before. That's very apparent in Nick's work, and I think it's quite apparent in some of mine, that you get into corners that you've never been in before, corners of the soul more than the mind. You think you're working from the mind some of the time, but actually you're working from the soul. People like putting people in boxes. Well, essentially, with a great, great star from uh, another form is almost at a tremendous disadvantage taking on another aspect of his creative art. Because if he's only become a great star by impressing people with some sort of truth, and truth in that, in his work, and that's what they believe is the truth of the whole person. But, you know, a great star, a great actor, writer, performer, singer. Very difficult to say, but this isn't, I can't express the whole of me. Mm. And that was, that was something that, it was very difficult to rehearse. I would have to use another level of truth in them. It sounds pompous, but it isn't as pompous as it sounds. Probably go back. I always have great feelings of inadequacy when it comes to explaining any kind of art anyway. I always totally feel tongue-tied and inarticulate because you know you're only touching on, most of the time, the superficialities of it or the, the outside skin, so to speak. Someone like Eno holds to a completely different theory that if an artist can't explain his work, then his work's invalid. But that's a very postmodernist sort of thing, you know. And I'm not sure if I buy that at all. But he's more concerned with concept than he is with sort of the thing that touches you spiritually. And Although he'd deny that, but it's true. <laughs> Their relationship is almost static until key moments. We live our lives secretly to ourselves. We bottle it down and let it come up and go ahead day after day, but key moments happen. It's difficult to say how one envisages a, a, a film. I like to keep it fairly open. You know, I mean, a lot of people like to, to plot through the whole sequence of events and storyboard and have a, a, an overall picture of what will be the final movie. I have a very, very sketchy overall picture. I find it very difficult to rehearse scenes before coming to the set. And I suppose this is another reason why this, this story that leaps in time was attractive to me. Because, how can I put this, that uh, all knowledge is connected, we know that all things are connected but we don't necessarily know how they're connected, and we don't know when they will be connected. And so, you know, in general, the, the narrative flow in, in, in a story or a novel or a, the theater where one's bound to be rooted on a stage and you can't leap from scene to scene, it has to have a connection. I mean, just physically it has to have, not, not necessarily emotionally, but physically it has to have a connection because you can't just 
cut away from the actor on the stage. This is where the, the theatre is... I've never felt that theatre has anything to do with the cinema. The cinema and the theatre are completely different mediums. I mean, it might sound juvenile to say that, but people do confuse the idea because it's a drama. They have similarities. In fact, they have emotionally completely different um, effects, basically because the theatre is, is a state where the, you have a fixed audience and the, the artist and the play is unfolding in front of a fixed audience. And that in the cinema, it's a movable audience. You rush the audience outside. You take however many people are in the audience, either two or 2,000. You rush them outside to have a look at a, a car pulling up at the curb and then rush them back inside to look at a woman looking at her watch. And then you see a thought in their mind you know, that you can't express in any other medium, really, at all. I think Paul and I were working on something else at the time, and I read the book, and um, it wasn't as though reading a book and thinking, oh, this is a great chant. It touched off, and it, it seemed to me a great shell for thoughts or attitudes and that I held at the time towards so many aspects of life in, the, in this film about being, as I say, not necessarily only, only science fiction, but he's a man away from his family. You know, there, I mean, there are many things that, that made connections that I thought one could find within the shell of the, of the plot, things about life. I think that that's why, how I'm drawn to many stories. You know, I've always felt that the, the plot so it's essential, of course, but it's really a shell inhabited by the characters and who they are, what kind of people they are, honest, dishonest, and whatever. The plots of all our lives are interesting, but how we inhabit them is more interesting. I wanted to get away from a normal sense of the passage of time through dissolves more and sometimes in in a conversation, sometimes in a cut, sometimes in a dislocation from an, one office, in the case of Buck Henry, appearing in one office, the next moment he's in a completely different office, though a similar scene, well, something must have happened, some passage of time must have gone by, and not in a in a helpful way, we suddenly find ourselves in a different situation, as if we strung out our own lives, cutting out all the uh, lead up to it. We suddenly projected into a different place, but apparently doing the same thing. We're sitting here today, next week, we'll probably having a similar conversation in a way, in a completely different place or next year but it goes by what is that expression time time flies but it takes a long time to live it doesn't go by in an even way and I I wanted to get that sense of difficult to get away in any form of drama from the passage of time you know there are all kinds of phrases they use in movies you know it's a time cut you know our lives are full of time cuts in a way <laughs>
in hopeful times, time passes quickly, in depressed times, time passes slowly. You know, it's, it's never referred to in, throughout the whole film how long it's been, how long it takes. By not doing that, you're taking away another crutch, another familiarity from the audience, another disquieting thing. We have this extraordinary clock now, you know, it says nothing, nothing can be more than 90 minutes, you know, it's a two-hour film, you know. Forget how that came about, you know, the two-and-a-half-hour film couldn't be shown for so many screenings, you know, in a theatre, because they had two, four, six, eight, and maybe at 10 o'clock, a fifth screening, whereas if it's two-and-a-half hours or two hours and 15 minutes, you can't get the audience in and, and out, and you get three screenings instead of five. That's the reality of it. And so that then, then they trained an audience to have a different time clock. It's nothing to do with the audience feeling that way, you know. If it had been more profitable and they'd been happier to train an audience to sit for four hours in the movie, it'd be only, God, this movie isn't long enough. That would be completely reversed, I'm certain of that. We're trained to, you know, it's, it's conditioning. We're conditioned, tremendously conditioned by forces, powers, and... And life, you know, a condition of how can such an insane phrase as our attention span, you know, attention span is conditioning. I've had it said to me, oh, the Americans' attention span, well, suddenly Americans are born with different attention span. It's conditioning, it's absolutely nothing. It's ridiculous. There's, I don't know, maybe in the north of India, they're sitting looking at a flower for four hours, you know, but, the, but if they'd been born, that Indian had been born in in New York, you'd be able to look at it for two and a half seconds only. I mean, it's nonsensical, it's conditioning. I'd already sort of been uh, really tantalised by the idea of fragmentation, because I was quite a William Burroughs fan, you know, through the early 70s. And that in combination with next realization generally that certain coincidences things had collided in such a way that presented a third piece of information which none of us were aware of and it would delight him when he saw these coincidences make sense this order coming out of chaos which of course has now become again in the 90s the order in chaos is a substantial um, theory in science which was never thought or never sort of conceived in the 70s and that, that element, I think, I took away. I invested that in, in a lot of my work throughout the rest of the 70s. And sort of, I guess, it reached its own particular zenith that it had with the work with Eno. My work was certainly informed by the coincidence and fragmentation process of working in this film with Nick. Very definitely. The act and fact of coincidence. And I changed my hairstyle. <laughs> During the whole of the film, we'd see Beefeater's Gin, Beefeater's Gin, and um, that's her drink, Mary Lou's drink, is Beefeater's. I thought, well, at least they would send us a crate, or, you know, you get some product placement, <laughs> get some product placement stuff, material stuff, because <laughs> I like Beefeater's Gin. And uh, not a word from them, I think the publicity people were writing off saying, you realise, is there any chance of getting supplied with a couple of crates of beefy? Not a word from them. This was right at, the, I think, the last two days of the film. They go into the liquor store and uh, 
Candid goes and gets her. Get, oh, he's getting refeeders, I think. And she, she says, anything you want, honey? And then he says, I think I'd like to try this. We changed to tankery. <laughs> so it's screw me feeders. They didn't supply us with one bottle. <laughs> we'll change it, but it was too late for tankery. They didn't get it either. And neither did we. At the end of a film, in in many ways, unless you're in a tremendously, tremendously powerful position, or if you put up your own money, I guess you can do it, but uh, then comes that dreaded word, opinion. Before the public are allowed to see it, comes a lot of opinions, you know, I'm sure. And we're bombarded with opinion and thoughts. Every kind of ruse is used by people with opinions because they can grab onto any kind of uh, thought to expound their opinion and you know they can use either statistics or they can use the fact that you don't understand the community that you're in you know and they can use all, and they have that weight on their side because uh, again you're an alien and to you know, in, in a lot of the ways, you know, everybody else is an expert, and you're the non-expert, just trying to express an emotion. You know, but then the experts come in, and that's they usually have opinions. Right? Sandy Liebson actually produced performance. Said, I don't know how this film ever got made. I said, what do you mean? He said, when he saw it, he said, there is no reason why any company should have ever made this film. There is absolutely no reason, as a producer and as an executive, you know, he said, I don't know how it got made. And the producers at the time, I think they weren't looking at the subject, they weren't looking at the people involved, they were looking at, oh, that's a movie with David Bowie, they looked at record sales, and they looked at everything except, probably as David, except the script. <laughs> <laughs> they looked at everything, which was very lucky. I think the script which was, very was the casualty of this movie. <laughs> which <laughs> was very lucky that um, it got made, as a lot of things do, really by accident, and we sneaked by with it, so that we had quite a lot of freedom, in fact. I don't think we even realised it ourselves at the time, but... Uh, there's a certain amount of arrogance comes <laughs> only looking back does one think oh well you know, at the time I'm sure we thought oh well, they want us very much to do this thing and they love it and <laughs> of course they weren't looking at it at all and it was a complete mistake go ahead strangely enough I was thinking of you just the other day how did you find me your record. Hmm? It took me a while, but I traced you. Did you like it? Not much. Oh, I didn't make it for you anyway. He says I didn't like it. He says about the music I didn't. Did you like it? Not much. <laughs> Rather like. 
some odd lines that are that in films generally that uh, I don't know how they happen, they're kind of miracles. I think that Scorsese has line in Raging Bull that is great because it's not only about the scene, it's about all kinds of life. It's been when Jake and, and Ray, Sugar Ray, you know, he's beaten by him and Jake and Mata looks at it, but I'm still standing, Ray. Bitter? No. I'm so sad when I look back at these things sometimes. I wonder where all the bric-a-brac went. The rings and the passports and the personal items. And I had a very close friend, a girlfriend in Berlin when I was living there, who unfortunately was dying of cancer. And she underwent chemotherapy treatment and went bald. And I gave her the, uh, the fedora. I'd kept that fedora all those years, and I gave her the fedora. It's the, she wore that until the day she died. Poor girl. But it had a good home for its last few months. So I know where that went. Mr. Newton at the end, is a, when the waiter said, I think Mr. Newton's had enough now. He's had enough. Not the boot. Ah. That's when I'd like to have ended it on a, a belch, just an involuntary human sound of relief, of like a, uh, finito. They won't meet again. They won't meet again. He didn't really tell him about Mary Lou. He won't look for him anymore. He's no longer a visitor. He's one of us. What is that line? Do you know what makes God laugh? People who make plans. <laughs> and he's saying, hello, is there anybody out there? That, uh, no, comes the resounding reply. There's nobody out here for you, Mr. Rowe. <laughs> Somebody must be.